Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Big Chief with a badge, a cattle prod and a head on a stick. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We are just 16 days away from Brexit at the end of the month and the game is still all to play for. Yesterday's Queen's speech was roundly condemned by Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader, who hasn't even got enough respect for his position as the Prime Minister's opposite number. Uh, He's such a baby that he had to pull a face while walking into the House of Lords yesterday with Boris, while at the same time refusing to acknowledge his existence. Why are the lefties so miserable? Why are they so impossibly rude? And why are they so lacking in a sense of humour? or any self-awareness whatsoever. It would be funny if it wasn't so tragic. And old Jezza is still too scared to challenge the Tories at the ballot box. Coming up today, they will debate the whys and wherefores of the government's manifesto, as revealed by the Queen. But all eyes are really on Brussels, where negotiations are edging ever closer to a deal. We'll be talking about that with Henry Hill, 0344 499 1000. Coming up, I'll be expressing absolutely no surprise that England's football team was racially abused abused by Bulgarian fans last night in Sofia. It's just another EU country with a Nazi problem that the EU seems to care very little about. Where's Giva Hofstadt when he's talking about Nazis? He doesn't seem to like mentioning the ones in Eastern Europe, does he? Uh, Also, as the Extinction Rebellion eco-planks are tossed out of London, I'll be asking just what their week of protest actually achieved. I'll be telling you, it achieved absolutely nothing. 0344 499 1000. And of course, I'll be asking you if you're happier now than you've ever been. Because a new study's come out and said that we were at our happiest when we had the Empire back in 1880. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So this morning, the papers are full of the Tory manifesto. Uh, the Queen's speech yesterday, as unveiled by the Queen, uh, who talks about her government and its plans. Uh, nobody really believes that they'll ever get the chance to actually put the plans into action because the belief is that even if we do leave uh, the European Union on October the 31st, which I still believe we will, um, there will have to be an election at some point fairly soon thereafter, uh, in which case we'll have to have another Queen's speech, another new session of Parliament and another new manifesto. But let's talk to Henry Hill, Assistant Editor of Conservative Home, uh, to see what he makes of it all. Henry, very good morning to you. 
Good morning. It was, as I declared yesterday in Westminster, in the tent, a fairly kind of odd event yesterday, wasn't it? Because on the one hand, you had all the pomp and ceremony of the Queen's speech. On the other hand, you had a relatively sort of dull Queen's speech with nothing particularly exciting revealed, which we hadn't already had trailed to us before. Um, and nobody really quite believes it's going to happen anyway. Well, yeah, I think it, it is unusual. I mean, Boris's critics are right, at least to say that it's very unusual to have a Queen's speech, you know, presumably before a general election. Normally what happens is a government has just been formed. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the pomp of its power. And the Queen's speech is an attempt for it to set out its grand vision for the country. And what we saw yesterday was really nothing like that. I mm. mean, if you analyse the bills, there are about five bills covering Brexit. Um, there was a big chunk of law and order legislation, which is obviously aimed at a general election. And then the rest of it was, you know, a couple of worthy hangovers from the last parliament, like the domestic abuse bill. Um, and then just a load of um, retail offers, mm. you know, things like making restaurants give tips to waiters, cracking down on animal cruelty, all of these things. It's a fairly sort of grab bag, random grab bag of things that they think voters will like. Yes, exactly right. And, I mean, Boris Johnson, as ever, looks relatively pleased with himself. Um, Jeremy Corbyn didn't look quite so pleased with himself or, indeed, having to walk next to Boris Johnson. Um, but it, it kind of reminded everybody that Parliament, to a large extent, has become a bit redundant at this point in time. And I'm not suggesting that, therefore, it will be redundant forever. But at the moment, it's just kind of neutered, isn't it? Well, I think it's sort of muted itself, yeah. right? I mean, because, you know, the, the, the typical functions of Parliament um, in circumstances where Parliament dislikes the government as much as this Parliament evidently does is that it actually takes steps to get rid of the government by defeating it in a vote of confidence and installing a new administration. Now, the opposition have decided not to do that um, because they don't think, presumably, that they have a viable alternative government because they have to cobble together the SNP and the Liberal Democrats and everyone else. Um, but they don't want a general election either because the polls suggest that Boris Johnson would win it. And so um, we're in this really strange position where Parliament is just stopping anything happening in the hope that if it can force Boris Johnson to extend Article 50, he'll get damaged in the polls. It's a really surreal position to be in. It really is. And what are you hearing about Saturday's session? Because we're hearing sort of conflicting reports here that it may well carry on uh, and it may be quite a short session from sort of 9.30 to 2.30. We're also hearing uh, sort of rumours and whispers that Labour might sort of pull out of it altogether on the basis that if there's no deal, there's nothing to discuss. Well, I mean, it's always been a bit. This is, it's always been a bit bizarre that they're having this emergency Saturday session. I mean, it's a bit like I'm sure you remember all those MPs demanding that they rush back to Parliament after the our prorogation was overturned because they had all this urgent stuff to be doing, and then nothing happening. I think it's it's much the same. You know, maybe if Boris Johnson comes back with a deal, then yes, you know, you've just you've disappeared into a very strange sounding uh, phone corridor, Henry. Can you just say that again? Hello. Yeah, hi. But, um, Hi, I'm back. Sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I don't I, know what you did there. You just kind of disappeared for a moment. I'll stand very still. Um, you know, if the government, if the government brings back a deal, then yes, it's going to need every scrap of parliamentary time it can get its hands on to, to win a meaningful vote and get the withdrawal agreement built through Parliament. But if it doesn't, there's really nothing to be done in the House of Commons until either Boris extends after 50 or does whatever Dominic Cummings ninjits to he's got to get round the Ben Act. So, no, it might well be a bit further. Well, I mean, wasn't Saturday supposed to be either about debating um, a deal, as, as, as it would normally be, uh, as they've done before, or um, would it, if, if that wasn't the case, then be used by the opposition to force the Ben Act on him and to make him write the letter? Well, theoretically, I mean, but I think the, the thing is that the Ben Act already compels Boris Johnson to write the letter. Um, so, you know, maybe... Yeah, but it doesn't have a time frame, though, does it? I think it does. I think it's if there isn't something agreed by October 19th. Yes, but, 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 but what I mean by that is it doesn't have a time frame by which he has to write the letter. 
gosh. Do you know what I mean? It Sorry. doesn't. So, I mean, uh, oh, oh, they think that's the okay. Well, in which I mean, in which case, I don't really see how Labour can opt out of it because it would be. I mean, it would be entirely in keeping with everything this Parliament has done over the last year. If they got Boris Johnson over a barrel with the Ben Act and then decided not to turn up to enforce it, that would be the sort of level of farce that we've been we've been operating mm. at. Um, but you know, fundamentally, I think that if. Saturday is required to force Boris Johnson to go for an extension, the opposition will almost certainly turn up because they hope that forcing Boris Johnson to extend Article 50 is the key that will uh, damage his standing in the polls and unlock a general election. Mm. And he has said two different things effectively. One, he has said that uh, he will not break the law, uh, by which one yeah. assumes he means he will, go, he will follow what the Ben Act says that he must do. But on the other hand, he's also said uh, that he's not sure he's going to write the letter. Well, I th OK, so there, there are two ways in which that can be true. The first is, um, and this is, I think, increasingly unlikely, um, that he has worked out some means of circumventing uh, the Ben Act. Uh, I think that the only way that would work is, because I assume that anything he did would get struck down by the Supreme Court, I think the way that would work is that he'd basically come up with this wheeze and then it would be a race through the courts to see whether or not a legal challenge could get to the Supreme Court faster than he could get to October mm. 31st. I, the alternative, of course, is that either he secures a deal, um, in which case he doesn't have to write the letter, theoretically, or that he resigns. Well, he's certainly um, not going to resign, I don't think. See, I think, here's what I think might happen. I think that he's on the way to getting a deal. There's don't, I don't think there's any doubt about that. Whether that deal is something that the Parliament would pass or would like or would, would even think about looking at without having the second referendum tacked on the end, which is what I was hearing yesterday uh, from a lot of MPs in the tent. I think he goes to, to Parliament and says, look, we are inches away from getting a deal, so there's no point in me writing a letter asking for an extension uh, until we know just how much extra time we might need, because it might only be a couple of weeks. I, that's perfectly possible. I think I'm very sceptical about this. I think one of the things that we've seen is that every time the opposition have set themselves, you know, a theoretical red line and then it's come and gone, they've just found new excuses. Yes. You know, they were demanding an election and then all of a sudden now you have them going like, oh, well, even if Boris Johnson does get a deal, we'll need him to extend in order to scrutinise it. Um, so I think I think the game playing is, to be honest, fairly transparent and cynical mm. by the opposition. They want to force him to extend Article 50, and I don't think they're going to take an option not to do that if they can possibly avoid it. If he can successfully pressure them into doing it, that's another question. We know there are about 20 Labour MPs who are prepared to defy the Labour whip to back the right deal. Um, if he can corral them plus the 25-odd Tory rebels... Um, and keep the DUP and his party on side, then he might just be able to get it through. Yeah. But well, we saw the DP, DUP were apparently in Downing Street quite late last night, so clearly there is something happening. Um, it would appear that in Europe they're edging ever closer to a, to a sort of a deal. And, and I think the transparency, as you say, which is being seen through now by everybody, of the opposition parties and their sort of efforts to just try and destabilise the Tory government, basically try and get rid of the government without an election, um, is clear for all to see, isn't it? I think it is. I think it is. And I think that the, the hope for the government is that if they make it obvious enough, and I think that's why we've had all of this stuff about these various tactics to try and get around the Ben Act, if they make it obvious enough to the public what's going on, then the public won't do what the opposition hope they do and blame the government for extending Article 50. Now, one thing I have had put to me, and I think it would be scandalous, but it's not impossible, is that in the event that Article 50 ends up getting extended and the government's poll ratings don't go down, 
the opposition could simply continue to refuse an election. Uh, you know, they could say, we don't want one over Christmas. Mm. Uh, that wouldn't be appropriate. And then they can delay an election to late February, early March. Yeah. Um, so there's no guarantee. I know it's shocking to think about it, but there is actually no guarantee that we're going to have an imminent general election as much as we need one. No, quite. Well, here's an interesting thought for you. I put this tweet out last night as I was ruminating upon a theme, and here's, here it is. If the SNP and the Lib Dems and Labour Party want to remain in the European Union, why should they even have a say in how we actually leave? I think the logic of that is, is unflappable. I think there's certainly a case that, you know, in the immediate aftermath of the referendum, I think there was the, the, the default assumption was that, you know, the Brexit is something we need to bring the 48% with the 52% and we'll come to some kind of compromise arrangement. I think that what's happened over time is that both sides have polarised. And as the hardcore Remainers commit themselves more and more, quite obviously, to frustrating Brexit, I do think they start to trade off their right to be involved in shaping the Brexit we actually have. You know, yeah. it's all very well. If, if, if they're not prepared to support the government's attempts to exit the European Union, then I think the, the entirely reasonable quid pro quo is that the government doesn't consult them on what our exit from the European right. Union looks like. Well, that's, what I was, that's suddenly what sort of occurred to me. And I know that there will be, you know, no, no doubt Democrats who will be aghast at the suggestion that uh, politicians from the opposition aren't allowed to have a say. But I'm not saying they're not allowed to have a say, but they've made it very clear that they don't want to leave the European Union. So why would we want them in any way um, sort of rubber stamping, if you like, whatever the negotiations actually are? Well, I think the other thing to remember is that it's actually not typical for, opposition, for the opposition to be involved in the conduct of foreign affairs. I mean, if you look back to when um, we negotiated our entrance into the common market, as it was at the time, mm. you know, that was done by the Heath government. Heath wasn't asking Wilson um, what Wilson thought about it. Wilson famously had that kind of slightly fatuous renegotiation mm. um, in order to put a Labour stamp on it. So th this idea... This idea that we suddenly need to start having, you know, cross-party war cabinets and, and all-party sign-off for treaties is, is very new, and it's not really accurate. You know, the government of the day is the government of the day, and it is up to it to execute its mandate as it sees fit and be, in theory, held accountable by the common. Yes. I've just seen uh, breaking news that Michel Barnier says that the, that the deal deadline is tonight now for, uh, for the deal with the European Union, so that would appear to be unlikely to be met, wouldn't it? I mean, in theory, I think the thing through the thing is there's always an element of theatre about this. You know, we were we were told that the, the, the withdrawal agreement couldn't be reopened under any circumstances. It has been reopened. Um, we were told that you know now that we're outside the European Union, we wouldn't be getting the kind of last minute back and forth that usually characterises EU deals. Mm. That's exactly what we're getting. Um, you know, it may be that we should take his word and you know the deadline that can't be met and everything else. But on the other hand, I wouldn't put it past both sides to be playing up the drama and the stakes. So that when so they do have a deal, um, they all look better for having secured it. Well, they will, and of course, it wouldn't be the first time that a deadline was set and then passed over without any comment at all. And it gets well, to no, midnight precisely. and they go, yeah. "Well, we've decided to extend it." You know? Yeah, precisely. I mean, this is how the European Union works, right? You know, there are lots and lots of firm rules until such time as those rules are inconvenient. <laughs> exactly right. The good news, I suppose, for those of us who are believers, and I don't necessarily say us, using myself as an example, uh, apparently the Pope has been asked to pray for a miracle so the Tories can deliver Brexit. This has come <laughs> from uh, a cross-party group of MPs who visited the Vatican over the weekend to, to witness the canonisation of Cardinal Newman. 
Oh, well, I mean, I mean, it's always nice to have his holiness in our corner. Um, you know, maybe he can see a way through that the rest of the tavern. <laughs> it really is quite remarkable, isn't it? And as far as the whole kind of um, uh, the way that, that the parties are kind of shaping up now, there seems to be a bit of a split in the opposition too regarding an election because you've got the SNP who seem quite keen now to get on with it. You've got the Lib Dems who are still talking, believe it or not, uh, as I saw them yesterday, uh, talking about getting another 300 MPs in the next election. You've still got the Green Party who I think want to have an election because they think they'll do better. It's only really Labour now that are holding them back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the thing to remember is that in, in extremists, if Boris Johnson chose to go down, you know, plan B, which is no confidence in his own government, um, he only needs 50% plus one of the House of Commons. And so his MPs plus the SNP plus the Liberal Democrats would actually get him over the line. I think, I think the problem is, that, you know, you're right. The, the, whilst the opposition could be fairly united in opposing an election, because, you know, we don't trust Boris Johnson not to change the election date or whatever, that was, a, that was one thing. It was a fairly plausible story. But I think that once you get every other opposition party doing their job and demanding a general election, it starts looking increasingly tactical and sort of dishonourable for Labour to keep uh, avoiding one, and it will become... And the pressure on, on Jeremy Corbyn will increase. And what's your, what's your thoughts on or, or what you've heard on the on the whole kind of silent coup? It was roundly sort of rubbished yesterday by various people, including Alistair Campbell, who I know is not particularly well in the Labour Party these days, but um, the, the, the story that John McDonnell is now the sort of de facto leader, and they're looking to crown a new leader, possibly a woman... Uh, quite soon. Well, I, I mean, I think it's perfectly plausible that, that, that John McDonnell has been the power behind the throne inside Labour ever since Jeremy Corbyn took over. I mean, you only need to compare them to see that he is probably by far the, the more dominant figure of the two. Mm. I, you, I, Jeremy Corbyn is old. Uh, a simple fact, he's, he's an old man. He's already fought one election. He'll probably fight the next one, but, you know, maybe not if it's in the spring. His poll ratings with the country are underwater. And for the first time, you know, the, the hard left under John McDonnell see themselves as having a semi-realistic shot at power. And I think I don't think that they're sentimental enough to, to lose that uh, for the sake of keeping Jeremy Corbyn in office. The challenge they have, obviously, is that amongst Labour activists, especially young left-wing momentum types, Jeremy Corbyn still has a huge personal following that John mm. McDonnell and nobody else actually has. Right. So the challenge for the hard left is, if they get rid of Jeremy Corbyn, can they get somebody else over the line, or is it just a Jeremy Corbyn magic thing that they'll lose when he loses? Yeah, because be? in terms of the actual side, the, 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 the people on his side who are women on the front bench, it's not a very large number, is it? It's not, and you know, none of them are particularly compelling um, no. front bench performers. You know, them. Rebecca, no. Rebecca Long Bailey. I mean, Angela Rayner has been mentioned. Matches. Yeah, I mean, and you know, they're, they're all right, and maybe with be great time, for, um, be great fun, be great fun for us, Henry. Well, you know, quite quite possibly, and you know, you know, give them, you know, take, if they had a few years in opposition to polish up their act, then maybe they could be front runners. But I mean, if they were thinking of getting rid of Jeremy Corbyn over Christmas to go into a general election against Boris Johnson in the spring, assuming that was the timetable, um, I wouldn't want to be putting an untested leader up against Boris Johnson uh, in that election. No, I'd rather let Jeremy Corbyn do it. Yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right, Henry. Thanks very much. As ever, Henry Hill, assistant editor at Conservative Home, of course. We want to hear from you uh, because your voice is as important as all of the politicians we speak to, all of the pundits, and this is the one place where you can get your voice heard. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there's a great piece on the front page of the Times today. Britons were happier when Victoria was on the throne, and they describe uh, June the 22nd of 18. 
1887, when the Times actually reported that 26,000 children had disported themselves uh, over to Hyde Park to mark Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. They were fed in tents, 250 at a time, on meat pies, cakes, buns and oranges. There were Punch and Judy shows, performing dogs, monkeys and ponies, and the Queen joined them in a carriage led by the lifeguards. That sounds like a jolly day out, doesn't it? Now what we get is Extinction Rebellion having a sort of illegal rave, taking a load of drugs and dancing about like complete and utter morons. Let's talk to Professor Daniel Scroy, uh, who's from the University of Warwick, who did this study. Daniel, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us. It's fascinating this to me because I was talking to Julie Hartley Brewer, uh, who does the breakfast show here at Talk Radio, saying that, you know, we were much happier in those days. But of course, she pointed out quite rightly that possibly the people who, um, whose works you were reading, you know, the people who wrote things and the people who read things, were much happier uh, than the people who, who didn't read and who were kind of downtrodden and who were probably being sent up chimneys and God knows what. Yep, that's, that's absolutely true. So I mean, the data that we have is based on the words people use, the newspapers, books, etc. We, we have literally billions of words, millions of books, hundreds of thousands of newspapers. But yeah, it's going to be based on the people actually doing the reading. Mm. That's absolutely true. However, I mean, from 1800 onwards, um, the reading population was a very large percentage of the UK. We have one of the highest literary, literacy rates in the world, and we have done for more than 200 years. Right. I mean, obviously, there is a, a temptation here to suggest that we were sort of ruling the world at that time as well. So we perhaps had, uh, in, the, in the way that Brits can have uh, a sense of sort of superiority, maybe we, we, we were happy because we knew we were superior. No, I, I think that there's a lot to be said for that. But I think, really, what drives happiness? We know this. We know this is true for an individual's lifetime. It's why people are more miserable at, at uh, 45 than they are at 65. Is it's all about aspirations, mm. it's ambitions, hopes, dreams. I think it, in 1880s, the UK was at the top of the pile. People looked forward to what they thought were going to be amazing events. Technology was rampant. Things were going on. Things were exciting. Flip side, you looked at the, the winter of discontent content about 100 years later, it's the exact opposite. Uh, people have got very low hopes and ambitions. Everything seems to be going wrong. So it's really relative to your hopes and dreams. That's how, that's how we determine how happy yes. we are as human beings. And without wishing to drag you into the morass that is Brexit, I mean, one of the things <laughs> that we talk about on this show all the time uh, is that basically people are so gloomy about the prospect of doing what we are about to do. And I once did a show some months ago uh, just on kind of optimism. And I said, why don't we just feel a bit, bit more optimistic about life? You know, because well, if, you were, if you were as miserable as, as this all the time, you literally wouldn't go outside. You'd go, well, if I go outside, you know, a bird might fall on me or a car might run me over or, you know, something terrible might happen on my way to work. And you just wouldn't do anything. No, I mean, it, it's true that if we could become optimistic, that would be fine. But in some sense, optimism can backfire because the higher your, your beliefs about what the future is going to be, the lower you sink if it doesn't happen. So that's one thing. So well, one that, thing we know that, is, does that not depend on your definition of optimism? My definition oh, of optimism yeah. isn't necessarily that everything's going to be wonderful. It's just that, you know, whatever happens, I will be OK. No, that, that, that's fair enough. That explains why, for example, 80-year-olds are usually quite happy. Because yeah. if your expectations are that you're going to be you able saying, to get out of bed in a painless uh, way... You know, are, you then, saying then, I'm are you saying I'm old before my time? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm thinking that it, it's, it's all about, as I say, aspirations, expectations. The, thing, the, the other thing that came out of our study, by the way, is one of the things that makes people the least happy, and this has been true for 200 years, is conflict. Yes. It's easily the most miserable thing you can have. Everybody knows if you're fighting with your wife, fighting with your kids, it's worse than everything else. So that is one of the things about Brexit. It doesn't matter what your views are about Brexit, everybody's aware of the fact that a lot of people are in disagreement, there's a lot of shouting, a lot of arguing going on, yeah. and that may well go on for a while. So 
irrespective of whether you're a, a, a remainer or a leaver, you're probably in conflict with someone. There'll be someone you know who disagrees with yes. you, and that's not going to make you a happy person. And in terms of the way people are nowadays, we also talk quite a lot about whether we're a bit too cosseted, we're a bit too kind of, um, um, you know, spoiled, effectively, for want of a better word, because during the war years, as you were saying in your study, um, of course, Britain's spirits were, were, were sort of dipping during the First World War and the Second World War, but actually they were worse in the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, the 1950s were great, were a great decade. Yeah. Because it's you've got you've got this memory. People remember how terrible the war was. Yeah. And that gives you a way of framing the situation um, that you're in in the 1950s. People think, well, we're not in the middle of a world war. That's pretty good for starters. And um, things are getting very good. Yeah, I mean, you've got the Britain never had it so good speech. I mean, yes. it all seems to be going up. But then, of course, that may have raised hopes too high. So by the time you get to the 1970s, people can't. I don't really have that first-hand experience of the war. All they can remember is all that I hope stuff that was yeah. going on in the 50s, and it's not, it doesn't seem to have happened. Right. So it's, again, I think it's all about aspirations, and it's all about what you're, what you're led to believe is reasonable. And maybe, maybe as human beings, we've been led to expect maybe, maybe too much. Who knows? Well, I wonder whether it's uh, tied in as well, and you may not be able to, to tell me this from your study, but whether it's tied in with the political climate in the sense of, um, you know, if you have people who are sort of positive leaders, uh, who are role models, if you like, who are people that inspire a nation, you might find that the nation is a bit happier or a bit more confident. It's, it is possible. So we know psychologically, at least, people like to have a small number of individuals that they can cling on to. Um, people don't like to think in terms of what the average of 100,000 or a million people think. They tend to like to have one or two people that, that represent them. That's absolutely true. Mm. In many ways, those individuals will, of course, want will reflect back what society is all about. If it's a politician, they want to win an election, for example. So... It's not clear. No, in indeed. But, I mean, when you think back to people like Harold Macmillan um, and uh, Harold Wilson, Clement Attlee, you know, these kind of huge political figures who were, who were in charge of a country at a time when massive change was going on, you know, yeah. that may have had an effect. Well, I, I, I also tend to think that um, one of the things about the past that we know is that there were far few, fewer sources of information. Mm. So it was actually easier for people to come to some sort of consensus or agreement so what we know now is, of course, it doesn't matter what your view is, there will be a large number of people. And, of course, you just have to go on the Internet and then you'll find a large enough group of people. And, and that's one of the things about our study is, although we're looking at billions of books, compared to the availability of information that we have now, it, it's, it's dwarfed. Yes. So I think that's another issue. I mean, it, we, people look to leaders to just tell them facts, tell them what was going on in the world. That's not so much necessary anymore. People no. Can, I think I think that's partly the, the the reason why we have things like Extinction Rebellion now, because I think people like to be part of something. They like to be told how to behave and what to think. And when they're with a group of people who think the same way, they feel more at home, don't they? Uh, well, again, I mean, just just as an economist at university, I've also studied herd behaviour, for example. So yeah. we know that it's true of stock market traders. I mean, we know that, that it's very easy to, for people to get ex overexcited and to overpurchase things at ridiculous prices just because that's the way the markets are moving. We know that's true. But then again, group activity. So not wanting to contradict you, but group activity has also led to a great deal of success in the past. There have been rebellions in the past that have led to, to, to positive movement. It, it's almost impossible to predict. Yeah, it and is almost impossible to predict. But I mean, also you could chart, I suppose, um, the decline of religion. Uh, as 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 the as with the advance of sort of technology and the advance of modernity in this country anyway, that there are far fewer people now who follow a religion than there were back in Victorian times, presumably. Well, that's true. Although it's not clear how that correlates exactly with happiness. 
So, I mean, it may be, for example... Well, you're the expert. I mean, I don't know. I'm just suggesting things Yeah, no, 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 no. That's absolutely true. So I think that that there have been a lot of ideological changes. The way to get at... I'm sorry to sound boring, but the way to get at whether an ideological change, like, for example, more or less religion or a a shift to the right or the left of the political spectrum is going to generate happiness in the long run is to think about whether it changes people's expectations, to think about the effect it's going to have on their long-run health, which we know is super important. Mental health in the UK is more important than Mm. income for most people, physical and mental health, and whether it leads to conflict or not. Conflict is never a good thing. So if you want the happiest nation in the world, make sure it's populated with healthy people that don't row a lot. I mean, that's (laughs) a a ridiculous message, but it's as simple as that. Focusing on other things which might seem like they're going to have a big effect um, might not be the most sensible. Sure. Also, your study discovered that people in Italy and Germany were happier in in some ways in post-war years than than we were in Britain. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think that... uh, in many cases, at least in Germany and Italy, you, they were very miserable, of course, um, at, when they started losing the war. There was, a, there was a burst of optimism at the beginning because they were winning the war. Then they were losing the war. It get, they, get, they get miserable about it. But in a way, exiting a war you're losing is a, good, it is a big happiness boost because from their perspective, they were losing. They wanted it to be over and done with as quickly as possible. Mm. And, of course, there were reparations. And remember that both Italy and Germany were in the middle of a dictatorial regime. The fact that that was destroyed by the war generated a lot of happiness because another thing that makes people happy is freedom freedom certainly does make you happy this is what i always say to people who think that you know in some way uh, we are not free in this country i'm like well try going to a country where you're really not free uh, yeah, and I mean, tell me germany, what you think germany in the 1930s and 40s I, uh, you wouldn't have a lot of freedom exactly no quite so i'm going to ask you a really difficult question now professor what about the future and the happiness of our nation obviously as you say if the conflict of brexit ends we should get happier right I think that might be true, although I'm, I'm sorry to say that, as, again, as an economist, I, I, can't see, I can't see it ending any time soon. Just leaving the EU is probably not going to put it to no. rest, I'm sorry. No, I think so this is going to go on for years. But, I mean, no, we for might, years, and there will be a lot of conflict. We yeah. might be allowed a little happiness if the, the deal is actually done, though. Again, it's hard to say because there are there are people who, who want that, people who don't. And it, it, it doesn't matter whether you're one of the ones who wants it or doesn't. It doesn't really matter what happens because there will be another lump of the population that disagree with you. And it's that fundamental conflict that, that, is, a, that is a problem. Yeah. And, of course, I think we, should um, just we know stop it's having taking its toll on mental health as well. Mental health is, is suffering a little bit too, and that's linked to this. Yeah, Sorry. but, I mean, you say that, but when we were in the war... Um, there wasn't much talk about mental health or when we were in the Victorian era, there wasn't much talk about mental health. And I think sometimes all of the talk about mental health is, I'm sure, very good and very positive, but I'm not sure it's making anybody any happier. I mean, sure, discussing problems may may or may not help help them. It's absolutely true. But the other thing to say is in the middle of the war, mental health may have come second to physical health. And yeah. fortunately, as a nation, we haven't been involved in the sort of conflict where normal members of the population's lives are at risk. A world war, a civil war, something like that. Mm. hasn't been. It's not in our cultural memory at the moment. No, actually. no. It's fascinating. Can people read this actual sort of study in its entirety somewhere? Yes, of course. It's in, uh, it's in Nature Human Behaviour, which, um, which you can access uh, on the, online. Okay. You can, it's, it's there for, if people want to read it, absolutely. And, of Tremendous. course, you can read newspapers. It's, there's plenty of coverage. Yeah, out. there's stuff in the Times. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Professor, thank you very much indeed. Professor Daniel Scroy uh, there from the University of Warwick talking about how conflict makes us unhappy. Uh, I'm going to tell you this right now, though. Uh, if and when we leave the European Union on October the 31st, and I say if and when because I don't know what time it's going to happen on October the 31st, but I'm still pretty convinced that it is going to happen, there's going to be an awful lot of people who are going to be very happy, even people who don't want to do it. Because they'll just go, well, at least it's done, for heaven's sake.
Let's hear from you. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. David says, when it was the northern miners fighting for a job, fighting for work, they got a big stick from the police. Even when it was the New Age travellers in the 80s, something pretty similar. And the poll tax rights, the same. So what makes these lot different? Well, the police were in here uh, uh, last week and they were explaining that, you know, the policing now in this day and age is a lot more respectful. They don't go around whacking people uh, with, with, uh, with batons or with sticks. Uh, they did that in Spain, by the way, which is pretty horrendous from yesterday. Uh, I don't know if any of you saw the Barcelona uh, airport uh, protest where uh, it looks... I thought I was watching Hong Kong at first because the Spanish police were cracking heads like you wouldn't believe. It was awful uh, telling the media to get out of the way. We'll talk about that maybe later in the week, uh, depending on how things go. Where's the EU, by the way, on that one? Where is Guy Verhofstadt and where is Donald Tusk and Michel Barnier and all these other idiots from Brussels? They said not a peep about Catalan independence, the planks. Let's talk to David in Bermondsey. Hi, David. Hi, Mike, yeah. Yeah, how are you doing? What do you want yeah. to tell me? Yeah, yeah, Mike, I spoke to some of the protesters in Trafalgar Square at the weekend. Oh, yeah? What did you do that for? Yeah. <laughs> well, I just wanted to... Uh, because there's so much disruption, I yeah. just wanted to speak to them. OK. And I said, what practical steps would you like the government to do? Mm. And first of all, they said, we want them to tell the truth. Yeah, that's one of their lines. I don't know what they mean yeah. by that. Uh, exactly. I said, no, that's not... I said, what practical... For the, for the second time, I said, what practical steps can they take? And they said, we want there to be a people's assembly. Right. And then I said, that's not going to help the environment. And finally, they said, well, we want there to be less plastic in supermarkets. Okay. That's not going to be, that's not going to be enough to reverse climate change. Well, of course you know, not. But the thing is, right, let's take these points one by one. They want the government to tell the truth. Well, first of all, yeah. I want Extinction Rebellion to tell the truth because they're telling a load of tissue of lies about the environment yeah. and about the end of the world and about how if we don't do something drastic, we're all going to die. That is not true. <laughs> it's not true. I'm not. No, of course not. 
and, and and also the government has, by all intents and per by every, by any means possible, become one of the most green governments, not mm -hmm. only yeah. in Europe but in the world, mm -hmm. right? Exactly, exactly, yeah. So yeah. I mean, I don't know what I, I don't know what we can say to these people other than to get lost, get a life, and and mm -hmm. and just get over yourselves. It's absolutely or, or, appalling. Or what they could do is club together and buy an island and live on that. Well, they could. They've probably got enough yeah. money. I mean, these guys yeah. are getting paid 400 quid a week to protest for a start. They've got yeah. millions of pounds coming in from something called the Climate Emergency Fund. I mean, I just can't believe that they're being taken so seriously. Yeah. Thanks very much, Mike. No problem, <laughs> David. Thank you very much indeed. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So according to the latest news from Trafalgar Square, there are a few uh, Extinction Rebellion sort of hang hangers-on, Klingons, if you like, who are still gluing themselves to stuff and refusing to be arrested and refusing to be led away. Uh, they're claiming that the MEPs have told them that this is a, an outrage against British law, that promises were made to them that they could stay for two weeks. Well, two weeks is too long. Make a protest, do it in a day, and then get lost. That would be my advice. Let's talk to Brendan O'Neill from Spikes Online to see whether he thinks, like I do, that this entire protest achieved absolutely nothing at all. Brendan, a very good afternoon to you. Hey, how's it going? Very well indeed. Now, I can't think of one thing that this has done. I mean, the people who are friends of Extinction Rebellion will say, oh, well, of course, you know, um, they raised awareness. Well, they didn't, mm. actually. They just made us all hate them even more, didn't they? I think the only thing they raised awareness of is how annoying modern-day <laughs> environmentalists are. I yeah. mean, these are some of the most irritating people I've ever encountered. I went down to their protests a couple of times to see what was going on. And it was just full of really quite middle-class people looking a bit spaced out, dancing in the streets, taking over Westminster Bridge, blocking the pathway of ambulances in some cases, and really just winding up the entire city. And uh, they achieved nothing beyond revealing that environmentalism as a political ideology has gone a bit crazy. Well, it really has. And when you see the likes of Benedict Cumberbatch turning up, right, and mm. having his picture taken, uh, shortly after doing films and videos for about five different car companies in China, uh, which I was happy enough to tweet over the weekend, you just think, what is wrong with these people? Why are they pretending that this is not all a massive lie, a massive stunt, and literally misleading the public? It's, it, there's such staggering hypocrisy in this movement. There yeah. really is. And, and the most hypocritical thing of all is that many of these people come from really nice backgrounds. They've had wealth and comfort in their families for generations. You know, people like Benedict Cumberbatch, like uh, the, the granddaughter of a baronet who got married on Westminster Bridge on the first day of the, of the oh, protests, yes. like George Monbiot from The Guardian, who, who was privately educated, when, comes from a very nice, uh, almost aristocratic background. These are very posh people, and they are campaigning against ordinary people. So they were blockading Smithfield Market for a few days. They went to Billingsgate Fish Market. They were blocking the pathway of people trying to get to work, trying to get to their nine-to-five jobs so they can earn some money. This was effectively a middle-class colonisation of London, and, and they were really sneering at ordinary people. So when I see people like Cumberbatch and others there, I just think, you don't understand how irritating most normal people find you. Uh -huh. But people like Caroline Lucas... Now now, like her or not, she is a politician, she is an MP, she's a leader or co-leader of the Green Party. For her to give succour and comfort and kind of um, support to a group which is basically asking for the end of capitalism is incredible to me. It, it's really strange. And, you know, the, the thing that really freaks me out about Extinction Rebellion is they're calling for an end of capitalism, not because they are really 
uh, uh, modernist and progressive and they want to move on in, into an even fairer, more technologically advanced society. They're calling for an end to capitalism because they want to go back in time. They want yeah. to propel us back to the Stone Ages. You know, they want us all living in tents and, and eating locally sourced food, never, ever going on holiday. I mean, these people look at the Industrial Revolution as the worst thing that ever happened, whereas for millions and millions of working people, the Industrial Revolution is the best thing that ever happened because it liberated us from the land. It meant we could move into cities. It meant we then eventually got education and the vote. And it meant we could travel around the world. I mean, they really, you know, for Caroline Lucas to cheer a movement like this, which is so pre-modern, so backward, so reactionary, and, and so uh, determined to make people poorer, you know, this is the really shocking thing. The left and people like Caroline Lucas, they will have a meltdown if the Tory party closes a library in Wolverhampton. Mm. They will say that's the worst act of, of austerity we can imagine. But this movement, Extinction Rebellion, wants to impose the most extraordinary form of austerity on humankind. It wants us to give up um, uh, carbon, it wants us to give up coal, it wants us to close factories, it wants to us to lose our jobs, it wants us to stop flying around the world. I mean, their form of austerity would make the Tory party's austerity look like a tea party, and yet the left supports it. So there's, again, hypocrisy at work. Yeah, and it's also very, very anti-kind of the developing world, because we're, mm. they're also saying, well, we're, while we're not going to, um, you know, uh, demonstrate against China or India, you know, we need them to stop doing what they're doing as well. But they're allowed to do it as, as far as Extinction Rebellion is concerned, because one, it's too far away, and two, they're a bit frightened. But basically, what we know is that the Chinese and the Indian the countries are building up um, more wealth than they've ever had. They're, they're sharing more wealth than they've ever had. I mean, in India, for example, many more people can now afford an air conditioning unit, so they mm. buy one. And, of course, as a result, the carbon footprint goes up. But why should they not be able to buy an air conditioner just because Extinction Rebellion, some bloke in Berkshire, says they're going to kill the planet? That's exactly right. You know, uh, China, the way I see China, China is a very polluted place at the moment. I've been there a few times. There are some days in Beijing when you can't even see ahead of you. Mm. They're called grey sky days. Right. So it is a very polluted place. But I see China as going through a similar process that England went through 150 years ago. It's industrialising, it's modernising, and that brings some consequences, particularly pollution. But the point is that the more advanced a society becomes, the wealthier a society becomes, the more resources it can devote to having clean air and clean water and all those things that we like. The problem with Extinction Rebellion is they're not just calling for a future of clean air and clean water, which aspirations everyone shares. They're calling for the reigning in of progress. And they do look down their noses at places like China and India and Brazil. Mm. And they accuse Brazil of burning the rainforest and all this other stuff, which is completely uh, blown out of proportion. And, and, and what they're effectively saying, and I've asked them this question, and they've said this to me, they're effectively saying that those parts of the world can't have what we have because the planet would not survive. So this is a case of very privileged Westerners effectively trying to raise the drawbridge on the rest of humanity. And I think it's actually deeply immoral to campaign against economic growth at a time when three billion human beings still live in dire poverty. So this is, in my view, a very immoral political movement. Well, I think it is. And also it's the lies that get me. I mean, when you see people... I mean, I refuse to have any of these morons on my show because, quite frankly, they're liars, um, they're misleading the public, and I'm not mm -hmm. having it. And I said to somebody, you know, if you had some kind of political movement 
movement which was telling these kinds of lies, this kind of level of untruth, you would never give them the oxygen for publicity, but these people get it because they're supposedly raising the issue. And it's like, well, they're not really raising the issue. What they're doing is they're trying to convince everybody that their propaganda uh, is worthwhile and they're raising funds... Uh, the like of which no other organisation has ever seen. I mean, they've got millions and millions of pounds flooding into them. Yeah, Extinction Rebellion's claims have no basis in reality no. whatsoever. I mean, their claims that billions of people are going to die and billions will starve or die of disease, these are not reasonable claims. They're not based in no. science. They're not based in factual evidence. They're, they're based they're on nothing. They're lies. They're complete lies. And they're based on nothing more than the apocalyptic fantasies of these kind of uh, bourgeois idiots who are taking over our streets. Yeah, who have, just, who have dropped too much acid in their teenage years and have now literally lost their minds. It's a complete fantasy, and, it's, and it feels like it does feel like a doomsday cult. So yeah. it traipses in through the streets, warning about fire and floods and pestilence, and t telling us we all have to embrace the truth and and uh, you know do penance for our, for our eco sins, and then we might be saved. I mean, this is a uh, an extremist religious movement. It's a cult-like movement. The the fact that so many people in the media and so many politicians, including not only Caroline Lucas, but Clive Lewis and Barry Gardner and others, they're taking it incredibly seriously. Mm. I find that astonishing because this is not a serious movement, either politically or scientifically. It is an increasingly unhinged cult, which is pumping fear and untruths into the public debate. And if everyone was so concerned about being green, surely the Green Party would have more than one MP, wouldn't they? Well, that, that's the other thing. You know, you know, people, vast numbers of ordinary people do not want this punishing, austere eco-politics. You know, everyone, of course, everyone loves to have um, nice parks that they can walk in and, and clean air that they can breathe. And over many decades, the UK has pretty much got those things sorted. Um, but this, no one wants this kind of backward reactionary fantasy of living in a kind of a very small life, a very meaningless life, where you never explore the world or you never travel around. Nobody wants that apart from these handful of extremists. And so if they were to, this is why they really want um, the government to enforce legislation. Now, straight away, because they know that if they were to put their ideas before the public and effectively say to the public, "Do you agree with us that you should be poorer and eat less meat and never and never fly to Spain?" Right. They know that, that you know ninety nine point nine percent of people would say, "No thanks, we're not voting for that in a million years." Yeah. So th there's a very undemocratic element to what they're doing. Yeah, as I well. think so. And here's another bit of information for you: Gail Bradbrook, who's one of the founding members of Extinction Rebellion, racked up eleven thousand air miles when she. She flew to Costa Rica in 2016 to stay at the 2,000-pound, 2,500-pound luxury New Life Iboga Resort, right? Apparently, uh, this was only three years ago, she racked up a carbon footprint on that trip alone of 2.6 tonnes, which is a quarter of the amount the average Brit emits in a whole year. It's really, you know, it's just astonishing. And, and and also, it's not surprising. We, You know, there are so many hypocrites in the green movement. And, you know, also, we have people like Prince Harry. Oh, God, who, don't get me know, started with, on him. <laughs> with Meghan Markle, you know, they're lecturing us from, from the kind of lectern of Vogue magazine. Yeah, the cockpit how... of Elton John's private jet. <laughs> 
right? And and then they jet off in these private jet flights around Europe to the to Elton John's swanky pad. Or oh, you know, my favorite was Emma Thompson. Oh, Emma yeah. Thompson took a first class flight all the way from Los Angeles to London so she could take part in an Extinction Rebellion protest and lecture the rest of us about the evils of flight. Yes, and of and, course, and, her, and, and she was perfectly. She said she was perfectly justified in doing it because she manages to carbon offset her trip, which is, yeah. uh, as I've pointed out many times, only a rich person's fancy That's right. because it means nothing. Chris Martin, right, to offset the, the carbon footprint of Coldplay's tour one time, put something like 20,000 trees into Sri Lanka. Half of them burned down and the other half died because it was too dry and they had they had literally slaves watering these trees. I mean, you just can't make your stuff up. You know, it's it's really actually quite repulsive when you think yeah. about it. I mean, there there was this uh, there was this campaign a few years ago where you, where rich Westerners could offset their carbon emissions by sponsoring Indian farmers to use traditional forms of technology. Oh, yeah. Now, what that meant is that you had farmers, including children, in fact, who were using backbreaking forms of technology, like digging the land by hand instead of using machines, it, and 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 Westerners were funding this because it meant that they could go around their lovely lives flying around the world and driving their cars and eating all their meat without feeling guilty. And that is a form of eco-slavery. Mm. And, what, and what these people are essentially saying, you're absolutely right, when they say, well, we plant trees and therefore we're allowed to fly around the world, right. what they're saying is we are incredibly wealthy and therefore we can pay this kind of indulgence. The Catholic Church used to have indulgences where if you were rich, you would pay a priest yeah. and he would forgive your sins. And it's a new form of that where the rich are allowed to do whatever they want, but the poor, if they go on a one-week holiday to um, uh, Spain or, or somewhere in Eastern Europe, they're looked upon as bad people. It's a real horrible double standard. It's very weird. And I think the police actually have... They've come in for a bit of criticism uh, this time, but I think they've done a pretty good job this time because we can't have this nonsense happening every couple of weeks whenever they feel like coming into London and bringing it to a standstill. I think... I had the police in on the show last week and I said, we're going to surely have to find some way of, of putting these people on an exclusion order of some kind or, or you know, making it pos impossible for them to, to do what they do because they're not reasonable. But the thing is, you know, I, I think everyone agrees the right to protest is an incredibly important right. But it, it's it's not an absolute right. There, no. there, there does have to be limits. And, and you know, if you are blocking actual roads, which means people can't get to work, it means ambulances can't get through, it means the police can't get through if there's a crime, that's a serious problem for society. And, and what the police were suggesting is that, you know, just move to the square, move to an area where you won't be in people's way, be discreet. And even that wasn't good enough for Extinction Rebellion. So they went way too far. Yeah. And there's also a real double standard. Everyone's now up in arms about the closure of the Extinction Rebellion camp. But I remember when there were Brexiteers protesting outside Parliament and there was all these demands from politicians saying, clear them away, we can't have this riffraff in the parliamentary square, even though the square outside Parliament is actually a very political space and that's mm. where protest is supposed to take place. So there's a double standard. I think the right to protest is important. I would absolutely defend Extinction Rebellion's right to protest, even though I think they talk utter, utter nonsense. But I think when protest encroaches upon everyday life to the extent that it is harming people's daily activities, then questions have to be asked. Exactly right. And just to, just to finish up, just to cheer you up, I've just been reminded that Benedict Cumberbatch crashed his Lamborghini into a cyclist once and knocked it 
him over. Uh, and when he got out of the car, shouted at him that he was in the middle of the road. That's <laughs> <laughs> your eco-heroes. Yeah, really. absolutely incredible. They don't all wear capes, as they say. Brendan, thank you very much indeed. Brendan O'Neill, editor of Spikes Online, talking an awful lot of common sense, because that's what we do on this show. We talk common sense. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.